You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash Film School. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. factory that makes 20 million irons a year, a dam that leveled 13 cities to the ground and displaced 1 million people, factory floors over a kilometer long. In her new documentary, Manufactured Landscapes, our guest today, director Jennifer Bagewell, follows renowned Canadian photographer Edward Bratinsky, who makes gigantic images of industrial landscapes as he travels to China to capture the evidence and effects of that country's massive industrial revolution. Jennifer Bechwal, welcome to Film School. Hi, thanks for having me. How are you doing today? What's, what's it like in Toronto? It's hot, yeah. and um, I'm sitting at my desk looking out at cherry trees, so everything's all right well, in the world. <laughs> <laughs> A little bit more comforting, I guess, than, than what you saw in China. Oh, no question. I have to say I was in sites that basically changed me in a truly sort of ontological way for the rest of my life. And I I think that's how Ed felt, too. We accompanied him on his fifth trip. So he had been there four times before gathering the rest of the images that are in the film. Hmm. I think that he's become a much more vocal proponent of sustainability because of his experience in China. I don't see how you could help but become one. And and yet the film doesn't... I, I love the way that you don't advocate necessarily anything. You're just showing images and letting them do the talking. Did you intentionally do that from the beginning? Oh, yeah. That was really the whole point of the film. I mean, it, that, that, it's a complicated answer to that question because I, when I first saw Bratinsky's work about 15 years ago, I was immediately completely overwhelmed by the capacity of these photographs to engage you in a very complex dialogue about your own impact on the planet by living in it on it without preaching it you were being didactic and it was it's a very fine it's a razor line to walk because they're incredibly ambiguous these pictures and so Bratinsky can be accused of for example his work can hang in the the boardroom of a corporation and they, they can hang in the environmentalist office that is fighting against that corporation and People are not comfortable with that kind of ambiguity. And yet, I really believe that the power of the work stems from its ambiguity. So Mm -hmm. when I first saw these and thought, you know, I would love to make a film about this work, I really was never interested in making a didactic film, doing a biography um, or a portrait of an artist. I really wanted the film to extend from the photographs and the way the photographs draw you into these worlds that you are responsible for but wouldn't normally see. And somehow, just in witnessing these places, experiencing these places, your consciousness has changed. There's one scene there where you're uh, talking to officials from one of the sites, one of the companies, and you're trying to convince them that you can shoot there. They're trying to block the camera in some cases. Edward Bratinsky is showing them his his photographs, and others are saying he can make garbage look beautiful, I think is one of the lines there. Did you feel undercover working on a lot of this stuff? One of the the incredibly problematic things about 
making a film about anywhere that is not your own culture or country is that you're in an, another difficult place because you're in a place where you I mean you're commenting on something that you are not of in some fundamental way. If I was a factory worker in one of these places and somehow got the resources to make a film, that would be from a very different perspective clearly, but a perspective that for a lot of people I guess had more immediate justification. In our case, I mean, the film is almost completely set in China, but it's not about China. Mm -hmm. It's about all of us, and it's about all of our implication in this industrial revolution that they are going through, and the fact that it's our cycles of consumption and waste that are driving this whole thing. And I, I, it was so difficult to achieve that balance of having a film that is mostly set somewhere without in any way being accusatory. I mean, China's doing what every other industrialized country has done, which is to industrialize, get incredibly dirty, make money, clean up later, and then send that dirty work somewhere else that hasn't gone through the same process. And the fact is the scale is just so much bigger in China than any other country that they may not have the luxury of making that mistake, the mistake that the rest of us have made, because whole zones of the country appear to be collapsing environmentally under the strain of this dirty industry that has been invited in from all over the world. So it was very difficult to shoot there because there's this real, you know, there's always this thing about perception and reality and an attempt to control perception. And we were, we had a minder with us at all times. Everywhere we went, we were met by several foreign affairs officials who, you know, would question us and challenge us every time we turned the camera on. We had to tell them what we were going to shoot. And the, one of the things that we were almost always shut down uh, about was interviewing people, talking to ordinary people, wanting to speak to people in the factory. There's a scene in the film where we speak to a a woman, a young woman in a shipbuilding yard who's a welder, and she just seemed, I just wondered, you know, what is this woman's life like? Mm. We talked to her for about 10 minutes, and she didn't say anything particularly controversial, but we were forbidden to go back to that shipyard the next day because we had spoken to her without getting official permission, and we hadn't spoken to the official representative of that area. So we were undercover a lot of the time, and I have to say on our very last day in China, we... We're in Shanghai, and we wanted to speak to some of these ho ho people they are called holdouts, people who will not leave their houses um, when whole areas are being, you know, raised for new construction and they're relocated somewhere else. And often they're not compensated fairly or they get to their new houses and, you know, there's no windows. Or <laughs> so there are people who are refusing to move. And interestingly enough, it's, it, it's almost like the first sign of democracy in China because instead of being immediately shut down or arrested, these people are being allowed to protest. So we wanted to speak to them. some of them. Of course, it's a very sensitive issue. We told our minder that we were going sightseeing and uh, shopping, and instead we went into one of the most difficult neighborhoods in Shanghai where there were a lot of holdouts and managed to speak to some people. So we were undercover uh, to a certain extent, but not uh, with the aim of making China look bad, I suppose, is my long answer to that question. In your answer, you, you identified something about the, uh, I mean, the real crux of this is that this is a cycle that every industrial capitalist society or any, any industrial society has gone through, but we don't have the luxury because of the manufacturing, the implications of manufacturing on this scale. We don't have the luxury of allowing them, if that's the right way to put it, certainly allowing it to happen, to foul the environment the way that it will be fouled if if this kind of, um, this scale of manufacturing 
uh, goes forward. When I'm watching the, the film and that opening tracking shot, there's got to be some pride on the part of the, the owners of these factories that they've been able to put something like this together. Well, I mean, what's the dance we're doing here? They're proud of what they're doing, but at the same time, are they just ashamed of the conditions that they're forcing people to work under? Well, it's, it's Is that a, the dynamic? I mean, it, 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 it's complicated. On the one hand, yes, the might of China is extraordinary. And they, they're, of course, there's always pride in being a, a power in that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact is that these factories that, that we went into, I mean, they were using, and in the, in, there's a circuit-breaking factory we go into, we watch them putting a circuit together. Oh, that was together. amazing. That was one of the... Yeah, it uh, looks like it's sped up. It's not. Yeah. It really uh, does that all day long. And all of the components that they use in those are, are made in Europe. I mean, it's state-of-the-art work. And the thing is, because there's so much handiwork required, it's like making shoes. Shoes are notoriously difficult because they, they require a lot of handwork. Handwork is expensive, and you you need to go to a place where handwork is cheap, where you're not paying people a lot. So... There, there is this back and forth of, of course, there's pride in China that they are industrializing and becoming a strong world power and that they're taking on this mantle of becoming the manufacturers of the world. The manufacturers of the world. We, of course, you know, Western countries all over the world are driving this because we're the ones buying the stuff that they're making and creating a demand for it. But I think the fact is that there are no real environmental regulations. Mm-hmm. So you're in, you know, the, the Yuyang Shoe Factory, for example, is the biggest shoe factory in the world. And all these major brands are made there of runners, you know, Nike, Reebok, Adidas, whatever. They, they just put their glues and dyes right into the waterways in front of the factory. There is no regulation. So mm-hmm. we're, particip- we're, we're condoning this. We're implicitly, more than implicitly, but we're condoning this by buying those shoes because you can never buy a pair of shoes for that price. And the irony is these shoes are expensive, but they're not expensive because they're paying people properly or because they're being made in the right way. So this, you know, the full cost accounting issue is, is, is a big thing, is, yeah. is something to really think about here. But it's also the fact that the whole world should be participating in keeping China from making the same mistakes. And I don't think we've been doing it as well as we could have, because otherwise they would have been able to avoid a lot of the uh, processes that they're going through. Coal is the primary source of energy there, and it's not clean coal. So the fact that coal is even being used is terrible. There's one coal-burning energy plant going in a week there. They're desperately energy-hungry to keep all these factories going. I want to remind our our listeners that we're speaking on Jennifer Beishwal, and the film is Manufactured Landscapes. We're talking about the tracking shot there at the beginning. I think it lasts seven minutes, and you're going through a factory that's... How large is it? It's about... um, Three quarters of a kilometer long, yeah. so it's it's a um, that one place. You see at the end when you get to the very end of the yeah. tracking shot. There's the diptych that shows the scale in a different way. That shot was probably the quintessential example of trying to translate these photographs in an intelligent way into the medium of film. Because if we made a film that just showed these pictures and said these are the pictures that somebody took, you know, I would consider that to be a failure. There has to be some kind of creative translation so that the um, the photographs make sense in in a moving you know in a time-based medium and so when we decided to do that as a dolly shot and of course it took us all day and we were you know we did numerous takes and we were shooting in super 60 millimeter film 
so we didn't have, and we were on a limited budget, so every time we did it, it was, it was nerve-wracking because mm. it was a whole magazine of film oh. every time. It was actually nine minutes. I mean, we, we go off to, when we go into black, where there was still a couple of minutes left at the end of that shot. We had a budget of film that we blew through in the first day, but we, right. just because that shot was so long, it took a whole mag. I mean, that yeah. was, so every time we did it, we were using up, I mean, what would otherwise, we may have got. 10 shots or something with that uh, amount of time. So we, but as soon as we finished it, I knew it would be the opening sequence in the film. Just I immediately knew it because, A, it gives you a sense of scale in time. So it, it, it takes, you know, you go through this period, it's a little interesting at the beginning, and then it gets sort of unbelievable that it keeps going and then yeah. you get bored and then angry <laughs> and then you come and then come horrified out the other end of that. Yeah, um, yeah. Was that the real sound that we were hearing too when you're when you're running through that, or was that some foley work afterwards on the uh, on the factory? Uh, it, it was mostly the real sound. So what we did was we had we were on a golf cart, yeah. um, which we had the camera mounted on the side of the golf cart, and Peter Mettler was um, there. John Price, our camera assistant, was pulling focus. I was right behind them, and our sound recorder Sanjay Mehta was walking in front of the golf cart. Uh, holding a, a boom pole. Yeah. So we got a lot, and then he went around and did a, captured a lot of wild sound that we augmented uh, yeah. with, and there was a tiny bit of foley. And we also put in some um, uh, just very subtle sort of sound design so that you would sometimes get, you know, I mean, everything is so rhythmic in, in a factory that we, we really wanted our, our sound track or our sound design to emerge from the industrial sound. What I found remarkable about that whole sequence, too, is I didn't see anyone talking. Of all the employees there, no one was communicating with each other. This was, a, you know, like you say, a three-quarters of a kilometer of, of people and work going on, and, and it's all focused on these small little units. It's incredible. I mean, these assembly lines would you know, go on for a long time, but they're, people didn't even look up. I mean, I would expect kind of open curiosity. It's not like they were told... You know, don't look up from your work because a, a camera is about to come along. It is not a society of inquiry. So somebody would look up furtively, and every time I see that shot, I see a new furtive glance at the camera. <laughs> yeah, um, and, then, and then they look right down again and keep working. There's, there was no, nobody asked us what we were doing there. They just keep their heads to the ground. Because the tragic thing about this is that everybody who works in these factories knows that there are 300 people behind them who would take their job in a second. So there is so much supply um, in terms of labor that there is no real workers' rights. People can't institute those kind of organizations because they're just fired. You did talk about, in the film, about the population makeup from agrarian to industrial, how it's the shift is, is, I mean, just the scale of the shift of people leaving the farms to come into the, to work in the factories in these major cities is... Just remarkable. I mean, it's the largest movement of people probably in the history of the world. And the thing is, I mean, the, the landscape was already under pressure because of population. Yeah. And when you have these, these yeah. huge urban centers where your footprint is much larger, obviously, living in a high-rise in a city where your food is brought in and you're traveling around in a car or on, on some kind of transit, and you're, you're, you're in these urban centers, if these places collapse, the water goes bad, if the air goes bad, what will happen to these people? How will they be able to survive? It's not like they can just go outside and, and uh, you know, pick some of the vegetables that they've grown. There was some admission on the part of the Chinese government. Uh, we just saw a news report a couple of weeks ago that 
uh, they acknowledge that a million people last year died as a direct result of environmental degradation and poisoning. Hmm. Yes. I mean, there's no... Obviously, they know what's going on. I mean, it's not as though people aren't aware of this. The, the Deputy Minister of the Environment, Pan Yeo, who is this very interesting and outspoken character, um, did an interview with Der Spiegel, which is the, the sort of Time magazine of Germany, and was very frank about the environmental challenges that China is facing. And I think that they know that they have to do something, but they still think that it's something I think that you can, I mean, many people still think that it's something that you can throw money at and fix later. And I'm not sure that that is, uh, is going to happen here. I mean, China is, is the first country that is building, a, there's a few, they're building a number of eco-cities, um, cities that are going to be environmentally sustainable, completely environmentally sustainable, before they're even built, as they're being built. Now, I, I wish that had happened with the cities that were built for the Three Gorges Dam, yeah. because those are decidedly not sustainable. I mean, they still have high-rises with individual air conditioning units in each uh, window, and these are cities that were built, you know, five years ago, ten years ago. Yeah. So it, it's too bad that they didn't, they weren't able to do that then, but they are at the forefront because they know that they have to start taking care of things. My, my fear is what are they surrounded by? Yeah. What, sort of, <laughs> what sort of an environment are these cities being surrounded by? We're, we're running low on time here, but there's just so many things. that there's, Of course, you just mentioned the Three Gorge Rivers Dam, by 50%, the largest dam project in the world. We were talking earlier about the, the visiting the coal field, if you will, where uh, you can just see that that was, to me, one of the most startling things to see just how much coal, and that coal dust has got to have an environmental impact. And What's that doing to the environment? My fear is that China is like one of these large ships that you chronicle in the film, these large cargo ships, that you can turn that engine off now, but this thing is going to coast for a long time before it comes to a, to a stop. Is that sort of how it feels to me in China? If tomorrow morning they woke up and said, we're going to, we're going to change how we do business, it'll take a long time before they can turn that around. Well, in spite of what we're talking about here, I've got to say, Jennifer, you've created a beautiful film. Yes. <laughs> and, and it, it just draw, drew me right into it, not only the photography, but, but I love the music that you picked out for it, too. Did you have anything to do with the, the selections? Oh, yeah. I mean, of course. We, we edited yeah. the film for about nine months. Wow. So we spent a lot of time thinking about those things. and. Uh, Peter, again, was in, involved in some of the um, sound design because we wanted, you know, usually what happens in film is that you, you do the sound after. You lock the picture and then you say, okay, what are we going to match this with? And I've always found that, that process unsatisfactory. So we started working on the sound while we were working on the picture. We were doing editing at the same time so that we could get have a more organic relationship between the two. But the idea, as I said before, was really to let the sound emerge from that industrial soundscape. I mean, I've never been in such dense places in terms of sound. The Three Gorges Dam site, I mean, it took it about five years to get access to that site. Hmm. The place was, I mean, the scale was extraordinary. It was unbelievable being yeah. on the construction site of this dam uh, and watching all these people that literally looked like, you know, ants in the photographs. Hmm. Uh, and the work that they're doing, and the sound was extraordinary. I mean, the, the density of sound. Wow. And going back to something you said earlier, when you talked to two of the uh, people working on the dam, their take on it was, this is for the greater good of China. Yeah, there was that. But then they also just said, look, it's a job. Yeah, you know, job. it was the two-sided response yeah. of, yes, this is, it's for the glory of China, but, you know, I'm just here to get paid. I'm just doing my job. So. Right. I think, like many other people around the world working in these kind of things, um, 
they're they're doing it because they need to to survive. Jennifer, uh, this this film really asks us as watchers and consumers, what is it that we are consuming? What is it we're doing? This is the world we're heading into if we're not uh, if we're not a little more vigilant. The film is manufactured landscapes, and the filmmaker is Jennifer Bagewall. Thank you very much for being here on Film School. It was a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. To learn more about Film School, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at KUCI.org slash filmschool.